All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. This is not actually going to be an episode of Empire. Uh, last week, a lot of you guys requested that Santi and I do an ECC recap. So we got into a little bit, talked with Michael about ECC, but we weren't really able to get into the details because Santi and I didn't go to ECC. But lucky for you guys, a lot of BlockWorks folks went to ECC. We did an awesome ECC recap uh, on another one of our podcasts, Zero X Research. So after this, you're going to hear this episode of, e- of Zero X Research on Empire recapping all of ECC. It ended up turning into this hour-long conversation that I think is kind of points you to what is happening at the forefront of DeFi. Talking about intents, talking about you know our market makers, the new bridges, uh, what's happening re- really with MEV, what's happening with folks trying to decentralize their sequencers. This might be a more kind of in the weeds DeFi conversation than you're used to, but I think you guys will really enjoy it. It gives a good recap of ECC and a good kind of analysis of what's happening in DeFi today, but really what's going to happen in DeFi in the next you know 12 to 18 months. The four folks on the show are Matt, Dan, and Sam from our research team, and then uh, my partner in crime, Mike Ippolito at BlockWorks. Um, if you want to get the news, the kind of big things I think this week on the on the news side, biggest one was was WorldCoin. WorldCoin uh, launched their token with a bunch of hype, uh, but also a lot of controversy. We interviewed one of their founders, Alex Blanya, on the podcast back in May. Uh, we can put a little link in the show notes or a couple other things that happened this week. CBDC job postings are pretty rapidly increasing across both private and public sectors. Uh, Facebook or Meta's Metaverse division lost $3.7 billion in Q2, pretty astonishingly high number. And then the last thing is that there are allegations that the White House is starting to derail negotiations on the McHenry bill. Uh, we've covered that. I'll, we can put some links in the show notes as well uh, to, to that if you guys want to dig into that. So up next, you will hear from ZeroX Research about ECC, Future of DeFi. And then on Tuesday, we're dropping a really interesting episode that Santi and I did with Nick Tomino, the founder of One Confirmation, which is one of the best performing crypto funds, I think, of all time. So anyways, that's enough from me. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today is July 24th, and we are switching things up, doing an ECC recap. And we're joined by uh, Mike and Matt. Uh, We were lucky enough to be in Paris last week, spent a little bit of time over there, and it was honestly a very refreshing thing to go do. The the vibes in the the conference were a lot better than I think a lot of us expected. What did you guys think the overall vibes were at ECC in Paris? Yeah, I mean, I was, like you mentioned, I was pretty surprised that the vibes were like positive. You know, when you spend all day on crypto Twitter and, you know, in the depths of a random protocol's docs, like if things can get a little, a little bleak at times. Um, but I just want to like echo the sentiment that that doesn't seem to be the case with the people that you actually want to be in a positive mood, right? The builders. Uh, and that was very much so how I viewed the average participant of, of this conference. Not a lot of tourists, nine out of the 10 people you talked to were uh, very, very high signal who are like building a meaningful part of the you know uh, crypto ecosystem. It was really, really cool, really, really refreshing. Um, and like, yeah, everyone was just excited about things, which feels like a huge sentiment shift from the last six to 12 months, honestly. I, I would echo that. There's just such a discrepancy in between Twitter, which I got to actually put my hand up. I still don't even know what the hamster joke was. I just completely missed that on my feed. But now my whole feed's referencing hamsters, and I don't even know what people are talking about. But there is that going on on Twitter, and then there was the reality of what happened in Paris this last week. And I just, I just want to add, you know, we, we've been hosting conferences for a long time. I've been to plenty of bull market and bear market conferences. This was a, a large outlier in terms of usually 18 months into a bear market, you're like deep into apathy. You know, conference attendance and excitement tends to be a lagging indicator in crypto. So like by way of example, I remember consensus in 2018, like six months after the, you know, the bull market let off and people were still like, yeah, might still be a bull market. And then the year after attendance dropped 90%. It went from like 10,000 people to 1,000. And it was really, you were just in the doldrum. So that's, that was my mental framework going into this conference. And it just could not have been further from the truth. It was like more people, more excitement, solving real problems than, yeah, it was just like, that's just very abnormal for this space. And I just think very, like it bodes extremely well for the current moment in time. 
the right curve was in Paris. The left curve was was uh, racing hamsters on crypto Twitter, and the middle curve has just given up. They're not here anymore. Full, full <laughs> agree, full agree on that. Everyone there was looking at the right stuff. You know, it's account abstraction, MEV, looking at infra. How do we support the next billion users on chain? And it was really refreshing having you know so much excitement around that. I heard the attendance at the conference was double what it was the year before. So I thought that was kind of surprising and, uh, and you know, fun fact. And overall, I was really surprised by, you know, how much also money was being spent. Um, I don't I don't know if that was surprising to any of you guys, but there's a lot of parties, a lot of events, a lot of great conferences, a lot of uh, money being spent. So I thought that overall, like, you know, even though the emotions and sentiment in the industry is so low, it isn't being reflected in reality, at least in Paris last week. Yeah, that's a good call out, Matt. I also thought just the collaboration between the different factions of people was kind of interesting. Uh, Dan and I had the pleasure of hosting the uh, ZK Unconference that Matter Labs helped put together, the the team behind ZK Sync. And it was just kind of wild seeing Jordy from Polygon and then Alex from ZK Sync and other people from like cross-chain interop protocols using ZK like to actually just like sit in a room, not talk shit about each other's protocols on like like they do on Twitter and instead like be like how do we like make this work like how do we actually make it so our ecosystem of L2s and L3s can actually interoperate with your ecosystem in L2s and L3s without it being like a one token wins all scenario so I thought that was super cool to see like live in person go down yeah yeah no that's that's interesting as well and I think one of the interesting takeaways that I don't know how I feel about this yet but Everybody there was building infrastructure. Literally nobody was building an application on top of that infrastructure. And part of me is like, you know, I guess like the the optimist in me is like, okay, good, because the current infrastructure can't even support like true true usage, right? If, if a billion people like we're looking for, I want to come use an application on chain, it's just not going to work. Um, so, you know, it, we do need to keep building this out, but it would also be nice if we were luring some more people into our industry and like building things people actually want to use and like not just forking another perp decks and, um, you know, putting some more degen assets on there. Like there's a, uh, definitely a long list of things that could be getting built that like that crowd wasn't necessarily there. Uh, so I'm a bit torn on that, but I'm curious if you guys, uh, can relieve me of my pain in any way. I can't relieve you. I had the same, the same takeaway there. And there's like, I've got like, I could put my cynical hat on and, and give you an answer for why I think that is, but then like a more realistic sort of maybe empathetic, empathetic hat. But cynical hat, Mike, you know, would say, you know, infra is very hard to value, right? So you need a token uh, always in infra and it's very hard to value. So it's a pretty good thing to build. You know, you can pretty much just point to the TAM and say, look at how big this damn TAM is, you know, launch a token. Um, and that's like pretty good. The actual like empathetic hat, Mike, is to say, you know, there is a bit of a real chicken and egg problem when it comes to, you know, apps and the infrastructure that they're built on. And this isn't like wildly unlike other tech cycles where infra gets built and then there's a lag of like six to 18 months where it takes apps like a while to figure out how to build on that. But the chicken and egg problem being, you know, in order to have good apps, you need good infrastructure to support those apps. But also at the same time, the, we don't know what these apps are going to look like yet. And really, the infrastructure should support the needs of the application. So there needs to be this virtuous feedback cycle that just hasn't kicked in in between the developments of app, the development of apps and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I think a couple of the interesting solutions that you're that you're starting to see crop up is actually teams building an app at the same time that they're building kind of like an SDK supporting set of infrastructure. So I would actually point to on the gaming side of this, uh, Scott Sonardo at Argus Labs actually developed a game called Dark Forest, but they're also building a supporting uh, roll-up SDK for gaming, which is pretty interesting. And actually most of the L2s are kind of doing this too. You know, like ZK Sync or Optimism, they all have their stacks along with one like sort of general purpose like ZK era. And then there's also the ZK stack and there's sort of a, a broader framework um, with different modular components that you can plug in to build in their ecosystem. So I thought that was actually like the closest thing that we saw to kind of exciting apps getting built. But yeah, that, that's kind of my opinion on it. It was also a little bit sobering just to hear some of the problems like these ZK EVMs have like live. Like they're nothing like, you know, safety critical problems, but like I don't want to call anyone out here, but you know, there's there's reasons some of the major blue chip DeFi protocols aren't actually over there yet, despite despite having like already signaled support to go over there yet. You know, so it's like 
these things take time. And I think we're just heads down building in a bear market right now. And that was very much the vibe and everyone's just trying to fix them. So that way when next cycle comes, we can actually launch all these, all these dApps. So ZK Sync is working to fix the one, one problem with era. And like, so when you, um, you know, post a block and there's a timestamp that's usually associated with that block. And this allows things like, um, say token incentives. Cause you know, if you give token incentives at a, on a pro rata basis to LPs in the pool, for example, like you need to know how long the LPs were in the pool in order to like actually have them accrue the proper amount of rewards. Um, and so like with most L2s, the timestamp that you call when you're on the L2 will return the L2's timestamp, meaning, you know, L2s generally have faster blocks, so they need to have the appropriate time for each block. Well, in the case of DK Sync, when you call, uh, the the L2 timestamp, it actually returns the L1 timestamp, meaning the last time a, a proof has been posted to the L1. Uh, so therefore, there's like a 20-minute gap in between, or like a couple-minute gap in between uh, actually getting a new L2 timestamp. And this is like a critical issue for getting, uh, you know, like Sam mentioned, like these large DeFi protocols on chain. Uh, and so it's I think it's like an interesting problem to kind of see one of these ecosystems have. But again, like they know that, there was going to be like, they know it's a problem. They're building out a solution for it. Um, I honestly think this just had to do with like, there was a huge race to get to production between a lot of the largest players. And this kind of feels like one of the things that I was like, okay, well, yes, we, we made it there on time, but you know, we have, still have some things we need to build out. And so I think there's just some dev tooling things that really need to get built out around not only just like ZK sync, but ZK EVMs more broadly. When you have like this new infrastructure, Again, you need to keep building out the tooling. So it's like step one, build the infrastructure. Step two, build the dev tooling. And then step three, build the applications that people will actually use. And it feels like we're in between step one and two right now. How often do proofs get submitted to L1 for most of these chains? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it's like a matter of like minutes right now, just because ZK, well, at least with Boojum and speaking specifically towards ZK Sync, um, you know, they've really optimized their prover. That's something they spent a lot of time doing. Uh, right now, Boojum's running in like, I think they call it shadow mode, basically. So it's like running in the background, not affect, it's sort of like a test net in some way. Um, and so it's a matter of like, it's going to be a matter of minutes at scale, but as, which is pretty in contrast to optimistic L2s. Um, where like more transactions can be more expensive. It's like more transactions will actually mean that proofs get posted more often because you kind of need to hit that threshold where it becomes affordable to uh, kind of like dissect the cost amongst the, the active participants in that specific proof. Something I thought was interesting was I went to Arbitrum Day and it was, I agree with you, you know, I met very few builders the entire time that I was in Paris. Literally, I think outside of Arbitrum Day, I met maybe two or three in total. And there I actually met, you know, people building the gaming space, DeFi space. None of these were, you know, ideas that I would say are particularly innovative or maybe going to bring a ton of people who aren't currently on chain on chain, kind of no catalyst, nothing like that. But at the same time, there are these, you know, there is way more building going on on Arbitrum than on any of these other L2s. And it's interesting that I hear so often from, for lack of better words, like Gigabrain, crypto people that ZK rollups are the way to go. Um, I've even heard a few times people say like the optimism stack is uh, that optimism is a better place for devs to build than on Arbitrum. But at the same time, it's Arbitrum has this huge dev community and it's growing. And it's like, well, you know, you can build this great ZK rollup in theory, but if you're not attracting all these devs to come build there, is that where it's going to settle? And that's something that I definitely have been thinking a lot about. Like, the, you know, do I care more about the tech stack? Is that long-term a better bet? Or am I going to focus on Arbitrum where today devs are actually building? See, for me, this goes, and to clarify, like in the last comment, like I'm not shitting on ZK Sync. I'm, I'm actually the most personally bullish on the ZK stack as a whole. Yeah, I got pilled pretty hard on that, actually, this trip. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, but I was wondering, like, when I saw the ZK stack announcement, we talked to Alex and Anthony uh, a couple weeks ago on the podcast. I was like, well, why is nobody there? And, like, Sam and I finally discovered that answer of, like, it's this timestamp issue. And it's like, okay, that's, like, a small, trivial problem that will be fixed. And then we'll see these large applications get over there. Then you'll see, like, start to see, like, okay, does this actually scale? Does this actually make sense? Um, the question then becomes what does the future look like? Like, is it more of this app chain thesis where you have hyperchains plugged in as L3s on top of ZK Sync Air or some other chain, or you have like some more centralized Validium type solution using like a ZK Porter that they offer? Um, like we don't really know yet because 
one of the questions I am still like trying to dig into the answer to is like, who, who is going to build these L2s that, or these L3s that have these custom solutions? Like, is it going to be a large payment processor, like a, a Visa, a MasterCard, or like a Stripe or someone of that nature? Or is it going to be like still someone more crypto native focused? Like somebody wants a more customized DEX or something like that, for example. Um, and that is still very much an open question in my mind. Yeah, I, you know, like some thoughts on just interoperability, like one, one key takeaway for me, like, I'd be curious if you guys agree with this idea or not. But I thought this was sort of a bullish and bearish conference in terms of interoperability, like bullish in the sense that I think interoperability is going to be solved on the L2 layer between different app chains within one sort of platform. But I don't see there being a lot of interoperability between different big rollups or layer two. So like, for instance, uh, these, these sort of hyper chains, I feel like it, they'll solve the interoperability problem within sort of the ZK sync stack or the ZK stack. So all of those app chains that the ZK stack supports will be interoperable. But I think an app chain that exists on ZK, like using the ZK stack will not be super interoperable between like an app chain on the OP stack. And my thought process is that the most likely outcome is going to be like two or three big winners. Um, and there are like a whole bunch of reasons why I think that's actually the case. But I sort of see like two or three big winners of these sort of layer two ecosystems where all these things are interoperable. And then there's like kind of shitty longer term interoperability where there's some kind of like you can get these two things to talk over like a longer, more expensive time frame, but won't be good for day to day sorts of interactions. So that's that's how I sort of see it playing out. I'd be curious what you guys think about that. Yeah, I think that ultimately we're going to all be ZK rollups, to be honest. And I think that there's going to be a certain design that everyone kind of converges on. And I really do think it's going to converge on one design. I don't know what it looks like. I, it's really hard to guess the timing, but I do think that's ultimately what's going to happen. So that way, this composability across every ecosystem is kind of like within one hood and one tech stack. Um, and I guess just another takeaway, like on the same vein of, you know, optimistic versus ZK is just, I'm convinced these optimistic chains are going for adoption first, like Arbitrum and Optimism, and then they're just going to implement ZK stuff as it gets further developed. Like they want those yeah. network effects. They want those developers and builders to come over there and get the users. Like it's just such a good game plan. It makes the most sense. And I even saw, I think it was Optimism the other day. Uh, awarded two RFQs for ZK interoperability. I think one was to Risk Zero, who actually was at the young conference that uh, Dan and I moderated in um, in Paris. And then uh, can't remember who the other one was, but nonetheless, it's just kind of a testament to the, the yeah, thesis. Yeah, I, I think we really forget how important BD is in this industry. <laughs> like, like, oh, we break, we we just made this amazing thing that will change the world, but we're not going to tell anyone about it because they're just going to find it because we're the best. That seems to be like this idea that a lot of uh, dev teams have and it's like you got to tell people you have a product or else <laughs> you, you got to distrib distribute and people forget that i don't know um but yeah mike I, I definitely agree with you like i got a good i got a good uh, new crypto vocab word for you so these like ecosystems of l2s will be constellations so you'll have like zk's uh zk sync's constellation polygon's constellation maybe scrolls constellation and you're right like you won't have that. Constellation sounds a lot better than Wall Garden, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does. And this probably goes back to what I was just saying, like distribution. Maybe that was where their pitfall was. And they built this great tech, but couldn't get it in the hands of people. Um, I think wallets have a lot to do with that. I'm, I'm almost positive. We'll get into that later in the in the show. But uh, but yeah, so the idea of like how to get interop between constellations actually came up at the ZK on conference. And they're like, OK, if we were going to do this, like what would it look like? And basically to interop is enabled within like a, a single constellation. So say the ZK stack hyperbridges exist because of a shared bridge contract, the, the contract that's actually on the L1 that holds the assets and a shared prover. And so um, if you have those two things, so you're using the same ZK circuits and have all the assets in the same contract, that gives you this interop. Like you can blindly trust hyperchain A and hyperchain B because they're built using the same tech stack. Um, but you can't have that between, say, Polygon ZK EVM and ZK Sync Aero, let's say. If I was trying to bridge between the two, they're different circuits, so I can't just blindly trust them. And we're using a, a different L1 bridge contract. So the assets aren't actually in the same contract. So to get around this, you know, let's say, like, 
in a couple years out from now, Polygon ZK EVM and ZK Sync Era both have insane provers. Their circuits are great. There's no reason not to trust them. They're simply built in two different models. Well, then, you know, at that point, maybe like the ZK Sync community and the Polygon community can be like, okay, you know, we both have great tech. I don't want to switch to yours because I like mine and vice versa. But we do have like, I, I trust your system. That can happen but you still wouldn't be able to have the actual bridging take place because the assets are in different contracts on the L1. So the only way to make this possible would basically be the ZK sync, uh, ZK stack uh, constellation and the polygon constellation combining assets within the same shared contract. But this opens up like this whole can of worms of, okay, well now our assets are together. So we're basically like commingled here. So your governance can't like mess with my assets. And I don't want, I'm sure your governance doesn't want to mess with our assets either. Like there's this huge thing. So basically um, this was kind of like one of the themes of, of the conference was like that would need to be enshrined and basically ungovernable. Um, and you basically just have to have this like ZK EVM shared liquidity bridge contract that, holds all these assets that get blasted out to these EK EVM constellations. And if you, you'd have to trust all the circuits there, it gets into this like whole messy, messy thing really, really quickly. And then like, who gets to plug into this? How do they determine who gets to plug into this? If you don't get in this like cartel, then your EVM doesn't have, comp or your ZK stack constellation doesn't have uh, interop with everyone else, like gets into this whole mess. So I strongly, strongly agree with what you're saying, Mike, and that, there's just not going to be interop for a, a, quite a while. Like we're let's, 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 that is just so far down the list of things we need to build. If, if David were on this podcast, you know what he would say? Something about IBC. IBC and mesh <laughs> security, IBC. baby. That's what he would say. <laughs> Sounds like that can solve some of that. Uh, yeah. So I have a, I have a lot of thoughts to unpack on all these subjects. So like we started off with Mike's point of, you know, is it going to be these off chain builder, off chain market makers who are just uh, creating some sort of unified liquidity layer, even though it's not really unified, but that's bringing liquidity from one network to another, or kind of, are we going to have interoperability similar to how the ZK stack works and hyper bridging. But one thing is hyper bridging is async composability, meaning it's like, you know, it's interoperability, but over a period of time. So it might take a couple minutes. I don't necessarily think that that's the best solution. It's not bad, but it's not great because, you know, like you can't really do, uh, what if the, for instance, what if you're trying to buy Pepe on Arbitrum or some coin that only exists on Arbitrum? Obviously Pepe is not actually there. And you have ETH on mainnet. It's going to take you like eight to 12 to 15 minutes to actually get that transaction to go through. Like maybe that's not ideal. So like, I'm not sure how I feel about the async or synchronous composability. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying, Dan, with like the, this, this idea of a shared bridge on L1 is kind of how these ZK ropes would talk. But there's also the idea of like, you know, sharing a sequencer, which would allow for atomic composability or atomicity. So like immediate ability to, uh, within the same block, have communicate between these different ecosystems, which to me sounds better. Obviously, it has a whole slew of its own problems associated with it. And then kind of to your point, Sam, it's like, this is this BD knife fight between L2s is about to come into production. Like we're going to see you know, Optimism, Arbitrum, ZK Sync, Scroll, Sarknet, et cetera, and their BD teams and their grants programs just paying enormous amounts of money to have any interesting app come build there. So it's like, uh, you know, I've, I haven't really formed great theses on all these different topics yet, but I, I hope you're wrong, Mike. I hope that we have, you know, at least on-chain settlement. Like even if you have off-chain market makers who are fulfilling orders, like with account abstraction or, or intents, like I hope that that's kind of where we end up with on-chain settlement at the end where you still don't have any trust assumptions involved and you do kind of have this unified liquidity. But obviously it seems like at least my takeaway from ETC was that's like five, 10 years out at a minimum, you know, on the earlier side. So um, while I could hope for that, I do kind of agree with you. All right. Let, let me, let me make my case for, cause the centralization of, of builders. Um, so you were starting to get into some of it there and I actually want to, I was listening as, as one does uh, walking on my way to work this morning uh, I was listening to Xerox Research, just catching up on, on the latest step. And I, I listened to this this episode with uh, with Brian from Layer Zero, and I actually wrote down a little quote. Um, and he said, what bridges are doing is solving an inventory problem. That's what they're doing. You have uh, assets on chain A, and you want to do something on chain B. So they're managing an inventory problem, which is largely, I think, how you would describe the job of a market maker. You are warehousing risk and managing inventory. So I want to just set that up to say, like, there you got, you know, layer zero when the, 
you know, Gigabrain, you know, bridges like bridge actual sort of crypto solutions describing very similar set of problems that like a market maker might think that their job is solving. But let me just lay out like what I view is like the three big drivers of centralized builders, right? And the and the, the bull case for centralized builders is like they give a much better user experience, right? Like eventually like chain like chains are very difficult to use. Um, and this kind of gets into intense-based architecture. But driver number one is the intense-based architecture, right? So basically if we're going to have this multi-chain world with different roll-ups and different layer ones, expecting users to be able to figure that out is simply not realistic. Um, like even me, who I would, you guys are more on-chain native than I am, but like I have a lot of trouble just frankly moving my assets around to where I want them to be. And I have a heart attack every time I move them through a bridge. I'm not even sure what I really have at the other end of the bridge. And, you know, if, if even you know, I'm on the left side of the bell curve firmly, but you know, if I have these questions, then like, I just don't think it's, uh, you know, probably feasible that, that many people will figure this out. What's, what's coming in to solve that is intense based architectures. That is to say, instead of like having to execute each one of these transactions, there will be some sort of pool or protocol where you can submit complicated sets of preferences that will then, you will then farm those out to sophisticated on-chain actors, read builders, they will go and execute that against some bar, which is determined as, you know, good at best execution, right? Like best execution was another theme of the conference. Um, early examples of that are Uniswap X and CowSwap, right? But people that are building even further out would be like Anoma uh, and Chris Goes, who, by the way, is one of the original, and he like kind of designed IBC. So smart guy there and smart team. So intense-based architectures in the meantime are going to drive this need for like builders or like abstractors who can abstract away a lot of that complexity. Number two driver is these uh, uh, shared sequencers, actually. So Matt, you were describing like shared sequencers will provide atomic composability. They can do atomic inclusion, but they're dumb pipes and they're not state aware of what's going on across different rollups. So you need someone to actually do atomic execution as well. So in order to get that atomic composability or cross-domain MEV or anything, you these shared sequencers are literally designing a big a pipe that only a big builder can can fit with. So actually shared sequencers are actually a driver for big builders too. And then the last one is actually something Vitalik was describing, which like kind of went over my head. So I'm gonna try to just uh but like he was describing like the state of proofs and like proofs, there's some uh like set of standards and proofs that are changing, but proofs have a very high fixed cost, very low variable because Roughly the amount of things that go into these like aggregate proofs will be the same, but like posting one proof will be expensive, high sort of barrier to entry fixed costs, and that's good for big builders. Um, I'm not sure if Vitalik listens, but Vitalik, I hope I just did you justice. Um, and, uh, and like all of those things together, I think, mean that we'll have larger builders. Like I, I would actually say, Matt, that it's as long as the, I think the acceptable compromise to make is as long as we have a very decentralized set of uh, proposers, uh, and hopefully as many solo proposers or self-stakers as we can, I think that's an acceptable compromise. But sorry, guys, that was a long diatribe. Like, I'd be, I'd be curious what you guys think about that as well. Uh, you, uh, I've been thinking a lot about shared sequencers as well. I talked to uh, Ben from Espresso. Uh, you know, shout out to them. They recently announced their launch on Testnet with Polygon TKEVM. Super exciting to see that in production. Um, and it's just like, it makes sense technically why you'd want this, right? You get to decentralize your sequencer. There's definitely good branding there. That's the right thing to do. And it's starting to like actually work. Um, so I get that. My unanswered question is if I'm a L2 with an abundant ecosystem with a lot of activity, people are like on top of my chain, why that, like that economic activity is happening on top of me. Why am I willing to opt in to give that economic activity to somebody else? I strongly agree. <laughs> I think of it the same way. I actually tweeted yesterday. I was like, I think L2s are just Visa and MasterCard equivalent for Web3. Like, think about it. What do Visa and MasterCard do? They settle transactions. Like, they submit them for settlement. They literally detect fraud. Huh. <laughs> like, it's the exact same thing. And then you're transaction. So I, I strongly agree with you. It's like, why would a, an ecosystem of L2s that's settling all of this value want to give away that primary value proposition to a shared sequencer network? It just makes no sense. And actually, I don't know if you got to ask 
Ben from Espresso Systems if they have a, like, because originally we asked them this on the pod like two months ago, but I think they're going to shift their revenue model to actually return, um, you know, wherever the most MEV is derived from, that revenue will actually go to the respective chain and then we'll take a little cut on top. I think that model- it sounds like work. an amazing idea and really hard to put in practice. Like one thing I've been thinking a lot about was, you know, if you have a MEV extracting sequencer, because MEV does exist on L2s, even with first in, first out ordering, they're, you know, sex, dex, arbitrage like between Binance and Uniswap. So how do you extract that value and give it back to users? And the problem isn't extracting the value. We figured out great mechanisms to do that. But how do you actually know which users that MEV came from? Or in your case, how do you actually know which chains that MEV came from? I guess you could host separate auctions, but then you probably bring in a latency issue. And Mike, to what you were saying, like I know that's true with shared sequencers, but I'm not sure that's necessarily true with centralized sequencers. So if you share, this is going to sound ridiculous and I apologize, but if you share a sequencer between multiple L2s, that's a centralized sequencer. So you have the same sequence, same centralized sequencer on multiple networks. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be that hard for them to run a node and be state aware. So I, I kind of don't really, you know, I don't really buy into the decentralized sequencer thesis. I haven't seen how that's going to work in theory, but I kind of do buy into maybe you could have a quasi decentralized, sorry, a quasi decentralized like six or seven sequencers or one sequencer. Um, that does multiple rollups, but obviously this is like a design space that's very nascent and unexplored. Okay, I have I push back against all you guys there, so I'm gonna say some spicy stuff, and you guys tell where, where I'm wrong. Because uh, so in terms of like why shared sequencers are gonna be necessary, I think there will be some use cases that eventually demand more centralization, or even if it's not that. Eventually, there will be a regulatory need for these protocols to decentralize their sequencer set. Like, I, I actually would guess, like, look, the MEV extraction is really good. They're printing money for the time being. But I think for people to ultimately, like, to your point before, like, there's a reason why a lot of these major dApps have not migrated. Like, I think that is very significant, right? Like, people don't, like, why have, there's already cheaper transactions. And I think part of that is because of the security assurances that you get on ETH main chain, and they just have not been able to replicate on that on L2. So if they want that, then you need to you need to go, uh, or they need to they need to find a way to decentralize sequencers and also provers. I would say for the zk stuff. The other thing that I would say is, I am going to go ahead and say I think I see this like growing acceptance that the escape hatch or being able to force include your transactions and account to the L1 make it okay to be a centralized sequencer. And I think that is bullshit. And I think it's bullshit for two reasons. One, because I would never be able to figure that out. My my stuff will be gone. I'd be I'd be the last out. You know, I think realistically what's gonna happen is like the big guys, the the hedge funds, the exchanges, all the like elite players that are actually very tech savvy will understand how to do it. They'll migrate their assets and then me, a little minnow, I'm going to be caught up there. I'm going to hold on to the boat and I'm just going to be laid out to dry. I just don't think I'm going to figure out how to do it. The other thing too is that you can imagine a world, right, where like DA costs are going to be way cheaper up there. Computation is going to be way cheaper. Like there will be businesses that are built on these layer twos that will not be feasible uh, on main chain, right? Like in a world where you actually have apps that achieve product market fit, are servicing millions of different users, have tons of different transactions that are going through every day, those economies are going to be built, are going to be built with a certain, those businesses are going to be built with a certain set of cost assumptions. And you can't just migrate that down to main chain, right? Like the, none of the economics will work. But then also like if we have these, you know, multiple different, uh, if we don't get perfect interoperability, like the stuff that you built on one chain won't just perfectly be able to port over to another. I just think that's a ridiculous assumption. Like, let's be really generous and say after like two months, you could figure that out. Your whole business is toast. Like, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a founder, I am not building a business on a rollup that has one centralized sequencer. I just wouldn't do it. The risk would be too high. So that's my that's my pushback. So what do you guys think? Am I wrong? I couldn't agree more with your first point. Like if there's not a button on your website that says connect wallet and force withdraw, then like <laughs> how the hell am I going to figure that out? So yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. I couldn't agree. So, more. so for the, you know, forced inclusion versus the escape patch. All right. I totally agree. Sorry. Totally agree overall with your point about, you know, 
basically if you're holding a native asset, an LP position or something of that nature on an L2, and it goes the sequencer goes down, you're you're screwed because the mark paradigm and A6, A16Z and whoever else are gonna get into ETH and whatever other assets are held in that bridge contract on that one, and they're gonna get out. But if you're holding, you know, an asset that's actually in that bridge contract, you will you will get your assets out. So just like a little bit of pushback there. But overall, I completely agree with your sentiment. Um, with the shared sequencers, I don't see that as like a risk mitigated. I don't see it using Espresso as mitigating all your risk that the sequencer is going to go down and thus the L2 is going to lose all its value and, um, you know, be a problem. I actually think maybe even the opposite. Like I think maybe today if you're, if you're trusting the gaming entity or whatever, that's running Arbitrum Sequencer, I think that I might have more faith in that than the untested Astro Espresso, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, but that's kind of my pushback there. I think I tend to agree with that last point, Matt. Like, one, you know, there's centralization and decentralization has trade-offs, and one of the pros of centralization is, in my mind, tends to be, like, performance and UX. And I kind of think, like, one entity running an AWS instance that's uh, cranking out these transactions will probably be a, do a better job, at least in the near term. Um, Benfish had, like, a pretty good explanation on, like, why espresso will work and have like a low latency and not being like adding additional overhead that I thought was pretty interesting. And I am for sure going to botch this, but I'm going to give it a whirl anyways. Um, and so we were having a conversation around like, how is it actually going to work? And basically you're going to have to have like another consensus mechanism that is operating uh, these shared sequencers as they rotate in and to do their job. And somebody asked like, is just slapping another consensus mechanism like on top of this thing, like, is that really the best solution here? And it kind of feels like you're just stacking, you know, proof of stake systems on top of each other. Like you could kind of take that out. When does it go? When does it end? Like, is this actually the best way? And he had a great response. And it was like, look, Ethereum's already running two consensus mechanisms. It has a slower time to finality one to make sure, you know, after this moment hits, which is, you know, I think it's about 10 or so, 10 to 12 minutes on Ethereum. We have like guaranteed finality. And so that's one consensus mechanism running that operation. And there's in between the point of finality and the lead head uh, block, there's another consensus mechanism happening. That's getting validators to vote and attest on the accuracy of this information in these blocks. And that's why Ethereum didn't go down when it had its client issue the, uh, uh, gosh, that's probably already a couple months ago now. Um, and so like we already have two consensus mechanisms running Ethereum today. And if you just add a third one onto that, it's like, okay, the jump from one to two feels like a lot. But the jump from two to three feels fairly marginal. And I'm like, all right, so if you just added a third consensus mechanism that was like basically executing transactions on an L on the L2s connected to Ethereum, okay, maybe that starts to make sense. And then this immediately goes back to like, well, that should probably be enshrined. And I feel like this is like this huge narrative of like, if there's any good idea today, everybody just wants to get it enshrined. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. That brings me to another point that I heard at ETC, which is something I'm so curious about. It's been bothering me for a week now. But the first day I got there, Monday last week, I went to this Flashbots, you know, proposer builder separation salon or something, where basically just giga brains talking about the future of Ethereum and how they're going to deal with MEV, things like MEV burn and Pepsi and all these other stuff, whatever. Moral of the story. Justin Drake makes, he's giving a presentation and at the very end, the last thing he says is, I've come up with what I believe is a solution to create based roll-ups that have instant, uh, you know, soft confirmations. And I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, holy shit, because, okay, so what's a base roll-up? A base roll-up is a roll-up that is sequenced by the L1. Why is that actually not something that really we're using today or isn't really an implementation or execution? Mostly because it would have 12 second block times and it wouldn't really create much of a better UX than interacting with Ethereum while it does still help with, you know, some of the problems around scaling. But if you can have instant soft confirmations on a base rollup, well, now maybe all of this is dumb. And I walk up to him and I ask, how, you know, how are you going to do this? And he says, you'll have to wait. So, uh, you know, one of my huge, you know, tidbits of information I got that I'm just, that I'm just sitting on. But uh, I thought that was very, very interesting. Matt, give the listeners a quick definition on what a base rollup is. Yeah, base rollup is literally just normal rollup, but instead of using the uh, like a centralized sequencer or a shared sequencer set or anything like that. So, for instance, today Arbitrum um, has a single centralized sequencer. We just talked about Espresso for a while, which is another one uh, that's trying to create a decentralized sequencer. Astria is another one trying to do something similar. There's a ton of design going on in the Flashbots forums and in other places, such as like the Arbitrum research forums. 
about what these sequencers should look like. And a base rollup just relies on the L1, on Ethereum validators to do the sequencing. One for you guys that I would like to to get your opinion on here. So let, let's talk a little bit about like enshrining and this uh, this idea of like moving back to enshrining things. Um, so one, so Sriram uh, on yesterday's bell curve, which y'all aren't listeners, you go check it out. So he actually said the explicit goal of eigenlayers to be enshrined within Ethereum. That's like his explicit goal, what he wants to do. After he said that, we were at Ethereum, like ECC last week, and there was a lot of talk about whether or not that makes sense to do. Um, so outside of just like enshrining smart contracts that would help with L2 interoperability, there's also this question of like, frankly, like eigenlayer. And I think Ethereum a while ago made this set of decisions where they wanted to limit complexity and outsource critical functions of the platform like block building, uh, something like to something like Flashbots or um, or delegated proof of stake uh, or delegating stake to something like Lido. And now Ethereum is kind of reaching this point where it's like, oh shit, uh, maybe this is too important to be outside of the platform or outside of the Ethereum protocol itself and are thinking about like bringing certain of those elements back into Ethereum, the protocol. And Eigenlayer is a very interesting one, um, you know, from my perspective, which sort of is like on this spectrum of like there are two very different sets of design philosophies when it comes to how to manage your validators between Ethereum and Cosmos. On the Ethereum side, they're like, there was actually a great presentation. Maybe some of you saw this screenshot, but a validator should be cucks, which is just to say they should be really dumb and commoditized and spread out and powerless, uh, kind of. And then there's a there's the the Cosmos philosophy is like, what can your validators do for you? Your validators should be doing more than validating. They can run application code. You can do things like vote extensions and they can like weigh in on all these other things. Like they should be able to be an Oracle if they want. And Eigenlayer is like the bridge in between. So it's basically, it's a good middle ground of doing like your validators don't have to also be an Oracle, Oracle but they should be able to opt in to becoming an Oracle, right? So it's like, blurring the line between these design philosophies of the validator sets of Ethereum and Cosmos. And I sort of came away being like, there will be something like, if it's not Eigenlayer directly that's enshrined, it's Pepsi, actually, which stands for uh, Protocol Info Enforced Proposer Commitments. That's the same thing. There's like an enshrined mechanism which allows validators, proposers, to make a commitment uh, to doing a certain action. And if that commitment is not honored, then the block that they propose will not be valid. You know? So like, I feel like commitments are actually going to be a buzzword for the next like six to nine months. You're going to keep hearing these word commitments, commitments, and commitments refers to either this like spectrum of what a validator should do, or it also will be builders uh, that again, abstract away some of the challenges of L2. So like Dan, that problem that you were saying before about like, um, you know, uh, like the, the way proofs work right now on, um, on ZK era, you know, what you could do is get a builder in there, um, to be like, do like little soft commitments or like say that, yeah, we think this proof, like if the, let's just say the, the proof time period is an hour, you could have a builder come in and say, I'm going to commit, I'm going to issue like soft commitments in between this hour to transactions that happen with the understanding that there's going to be a proof and extract some profit that way. So I actually think commitments is going to be a big buzzword over the next like six or nine months. And that's what it refers to. But yeah, what do you guys think? Do you think Eigenlayer should be uh, uh, enshrined? Like, is that the best solution here? And when should that happen? Because today Eigenlayer has some uh, restaking going on, but I don't believe any of these solutions being built on top of the Eigenlayer are live yet. So do you wait for this thing to get like big and then be like, okay, this is clearly important. People clearly demand it. Let's enshrine it. Or do you try to front run that and be like, you know, at that point, maybe it doesn't want to become enshrined because it already has this native demand. Or do you try to get ahead of that and do it before it like occurs and risk enshrining something that never gets used? I think there's a there's a good expert. There's a good there's an even better thing to look at than, you know, uh, Pepsi or Lido in this example, which is PBS, because PBS exists right through MedBoost, like Flashbots created MedBoost. It was a short-term solution. It wasn't meant to last that long. But if we don't enshrine PBS in the next six to 12 months, there's a good chance that MedBoost becomes, you know, a mature, mature product that's dead. And at some point, it's like, 
well, why do we have to enshrine it? Especially because now they're talking about like these caps on block builders bids. So it's like, we're still going to need relays. So, you know, every, everything I hear makes me think like, okay, why are we even enshrining this in the first place? Um, and the answer is, I really don't know, like to some extent, and I, this is going to make me sound a little dumb, but to some extent, I don't even really know what enshrining something is. Like, obviously I know like account, account abstraction was enshrined with, with, you know, ERC4337, but at the same time, like, I don't even really know what it is. I know it's including the protocol, but it's hard to really put into words. So it's like, uh, yeah, I guess that's my take there. I agree with that take. Plus, I don't know if you remember a while ago, but there was like a, a bug in, in MevBoost software. So like, had that been implemented and enshrined like from the get-go, that, that could have been a lot worse than it actually was. So I agree that these things should be tested in production before you just go, hey, like, let's go ahead and throw this in the protocol at the base layer like forever because you really don't know. And I think that's kind of the strategy with the count abstraction too. You know, it's like, hey, L2 is like, please start working on this. Like, I feel like you guys need to be experimenting with this. So maybe one day we have it on the ETH L1. And then just to the point of Eigenlayer specifically, I don't know what it is, but I just have this gut feeling. And it's actually funny because we talked about Ben from Espresso, but on that same pod was Josh Josh from Astria. And he was saying, I just know something's going to blow up from restaking. Like you can't leverage economic security over and over and over and over again. And I know Sriram has like a pretty good rebuttal to this, but I tend to side with Josh. I just seems a little bit dangerous for something that we have that's so pure and and you know taking so long to build to the state to like really put in jeopardy just on the new coolest idea i don't know man every time we get into these types of conversations about like the troubles with scaling l2s and restaking and <laughs> doing this and doing that it just makes me want to go back to solana give me one single shard man like the problems over there are really harder to solve than like this and we had to come up with like an entirely new technology and zero novel zero knowledge proving just to get to the point where we can be like, okay, this thing could probably scale. Like that is mind boggling. And ah, man, I don't know. Sometimes it's just like, I feel like we're doing too much to, to make this thing work when maybe there's a better solution. Yeah. Let me, let me like sort of build on that idea. Like the big difference between Solana and Ethereum is that again, there was a difference in terms of how validators should look. It's like, Ethereum wants there to be lots of individual solo stakers and val- and Solana's more okay with like large institutional stakers that might leverage a data center, right? And be okay with paying more per month. So let me just say, like, let's assume, uh, Sam, that Eigenlayer actually is like fine and doesn't blow up. But like, here's the other thing that will likely happen. Uh, so liquid staking is taking off, right? At, like the stake rate is going up and up and up for ETH, which means that the return on staking, like the average yield that you get for staking is going down and down and down and down. So eventually what might be the case, you could imagine a future, even within the next like nine or 18 months, that in order to like really profitably validate, you actually have to opt into these other sort of uh, uh, eigenlayer enabled restaking sort of solutions. Because is it really worth, you know, staking if you're getting like a 2% Yields, you know, especially when the the three month treasury is at like six percent, that just like doesn't seem like a sustainable thing. So you actually might end up having to, in order to be like profitable as a validator, you might ha- end up having to opt into all of these additional middleware type hardware, like doing EigenDA, which I, by the way, also think is a great product, or uh, opting into running sequencing software for one of these rollups, or like any other number of things. So suddenly, like in order to be a profitable validator. You have to do all of these things anyway that have a much higher cost in hardware requirement. And then where are we? We're back with Solana. We're back with Solana size cost bases and levels of complexity at the validator level. So there's like this history, especially in Ethereum, of like very well-intended design decisions that ignore the economics of all the actors that are in the system. Um, like not enshrining some amount way to delegate your stake is a good example of that. Like not being a, a delegated proof of stake consensus uh, mechanism. And like, then the market finds a way, like you don't enshrine a way to delegate, you're going to get Lido. Uh, you know, you, you, you take away proposers ability to do this, then you're going to get Eigenlayer. It's just the market finds a way. Right. And then what are we going to do? Make it illegal to, to, for validators to like do extra stuff. I mean, how could you even enforce that? So I don't know. It's just an interesting, it's just interesting. I don't know if I even have a take, but it's all these things are converging sort of. And then further to that, 
Um, I think there might be like a logical pushback to this, but there's, if you, so, okay. So we have like a, in that world, we have a slowly consolidating validator set that's getting more expensive to run and therefore like kind of pulling out the number of uh, at-home stakers. Plus you have seven relays and maybe five to six builders that win a majority of blocks. Are we just recreating TradFi and in, in, in with different major players or like what, I don't know, Sam, Matt, like, I'm curious to get your thoughts here. I, I just don't buy it. I think honestly, like if, if the yield return in ETH native terms gets that low, the float on ETH is going to be ridiculously low. There is going to be no ETH left to borrow. There's going to be no ETH left anywhere. Like the price would be going so high that you don't care if you're making 0.05% APR because the dollar denominated amount, like I've heard this argument and I just, I think the natural dynamics of supply and demand are going to play out here. And like, this is all just like people having a hard time wrapping their heads around the dollar price of ETH versus like an ETH APR personally. This brings me back to a super interesting conversation that Dan, Sam and I were having in the back of a club late at night with an insanely smart guy, you know, like we're keep in mind, like a little, had a couple beers, but at the end of the day, we're talking Mev because <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what we, we do on our Friday nights. Anyways, get t-shirts that say um, that. Had a couple beers, but we're talking them. <laughs> we're cool guys. So, you know, we really do. <laughs> oh god. Really, really smart guy. You know, someone I respect heavily. Basically, has this thesis that um, for J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, etc., all these big banks, Citigroup, etc., to get into crypto, the way it's going to work is they're going to slowly acquire all these Ethereum. They're going to run validators. They're going to run relayers, and they're going to run builders. And in order to get included in a block that, you know, one of their validators proposes, you're going to have to censor because, you know, these companies are huge companies. They have to abide by KYC, AML, and a host of other regulatory enforcement. So that's just how it's going to work. And his thesis was that they were going to acquire enough ETH that basically the entire Ethereum network, to some extent, would have to be censored for it to work. And, uh, you know, that was kind of his base case for what Ethereum looks like. And in my head, you know, I'm arguing back, I'm like... There's no way this is what it is. Like if if those banks are going to acquire that much ETH, they're going to go use a network like Solana or they're going to go create their own blockchain where there's nine validators that is dumb nine and you can ignore 95% of the design decisions, maybe 99% of the design decisions that Ethereum has made in the past because those were all to enable decentralization. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter that you think that that's what they should do because ETH is where they're going to want to be and all those, what, you know, sorry. And I just thought it was such an interesting conversation. So I wanted to bring it up and I thought related to this Solana convo as well. Yeah. And I, so uh, the night of, I adamantly disagree, disagree with you, but I've kind of come around to it a little bit because the idea of why you'd go build on Ethereum still kind of made sense to me because that's where the user, like not necessarily the users, cause you're kind of coming with the users and the liquidity, right? If you're this like KYC TradFi player, like you have the users, you have the capital, you're, you're kind of like bringing the party with you, but you still need the applications to use. And that's something that a lot of other blockchains like haven't figured out yet. Like, okay, yes, there's a DeFi ecosystem that's starting to blossom again on Solana, but none of that is battle tested for billions of dollars of capital. Whereas Aave and Curve and Uniswap are processing billions of dollars daily. And like, even like, you know, some of the OG DeFi protocols maybe don't even get used as much anymore. Like maybe Compound, like, still holds billions of dollars in assets. And like, to me, that matters significantly. Um, but like, I also thought it was just interesting because he kind of like painted the picture of how this would actually happen. And like, I didn't necessarily think about this before. And it, it makes sense, right? If you have your own like network of validators and maybe you only own like 10% of the ETH network, you can, whenever those validators go up to propose a block, you can just look at one relayer that looks at one builder and you're always therefore picking the highest block. And I like, it is possible to have a centralization vector in Ethereum. And like, you can argue whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but like it's possible today. Um, but yeah, I guess it does require buying a material position of staked ETH. I actually, um, Matt, on the night of, I actually disagreed with you too, but now I, now I agree with you. Like, like what you're describing actually is what, like you actually had that sophisticated actor in the form of SBF. Like this is what SBF did. He, he literally like was like, yeah, I want to play these like weird games with FTT and all this stuff. And he didn't do it on Ethereum. The cost of attack is too high. And like, I, 
where I would actually quibble with this guy too, I don't think JP Morgan is doing any of this stuff where what I do think is probably going to happen is like Citadel is about to be a massive player in crypto or someone like them because they will figure this stuff out and they will find a way to like play these games and act as infrastructure and stuff like that. But I think at this point, doing that to Ethereum would be too costly. And uh, what you're describing too is the ability to like the liquid staking protocols can facilitate institutional staking requirements with KYC validators. So for instance, like Lido has a staking router. They've launched a staking router. So instead of just being a whitelisted set of like 34 node operators or whatever it is, there are going to be tons of different modules. And there can just be a KYC institutional validator set run by like Chorus One and Block Daemon. And what Lido can do is just connect big institutional stakers with like that validator set. And there doesn't have to be this weird, they're co-opting Ethereum. It's like, That'll probably just be a business and like Lido will be like a liquid staking as a service type token and they'll like intermediate and connect those things. I have another, I have one thing that one step further, giving some alpha on, but I actually think Lido has a built-in bribe mechanism as well. So similarly to how Curve, uh, you know, there's like a bribe mechanism there, right? You want to, you do VE, like lock up your tokens of VE and you can direct liquidity within the protocol. Let's say you're Citadel, right? Or, or JP Morgan or whoever, like a big financial institutional allocator and you want to allocate some ETH, right? You want to allocate uh, to the cheapest possible validator set, right? You go to Lido and there's the ability uh, for you to you know, be, be connected with a certain validator set that meets your requirements. And then the governance of Lido sets the fees, right? So you could either pay the fees that the Lido program that like Lido governance had set, or you can buy up a bunch of Lido. You can create a proposal that we want to include more institutional stakers and yada, yada. So we should lower the fees on this particular staking module to 0%. You get that passed in governance and then you, you stake all your stuff and you pay 0% to the protocol. You see what I'm saying? In the same way that like there's an incentive to buy curve, lock it up and then direct liquidity to your pool. There's also the same incentive in Lido to buy up a bunch of LDO, reduce your, your validation fees, and then validate that way. There's some alpha coming from Mike himself. So that's, <laughs> okay, that's really interesting. And I kind of want to work backwards because I have a couple of points. Um, so that is pretty interesting. And like, I think we're going to have to figure out a way to make tokens useful and we don't know what that looks like. And like, this is like a go to jail statement, but like in the long run, I think tokens are programmable equity. We always had this huge narrative around programmable money and like why that's important, what that unlocks. And like everybody knew tokens were like this cool thing, but that's effectively what they've become. Like if you look at it today, there's a lot of tokens out there that look just like equity and, but they can also do more. So where equity gives you a legal claim on the cash flows of a business, tokens can give you programmatic claims on the cash flows of a protocol. And I think that's like a narrative we're starting to kind of see the early innings of play out. And this whole debate in the SEC of what is a token and how should this be accounted? And is it equity? And are these like, you know, uh, unregulated securities? And I think you're going to have three categories, tokens, equities, commodities. That is the direction I'd really like to see things go, uh, but not to get on too big of a tangent there. I just like the idea of like Lido being like, okay, how are we going to make this thing useful outside of just being like this instrument we use to raise capital? Um, so excited to kind of see that. And on your first point, um, I do have a question. It's like, you know, if you're a large, like let's, I don't know, you said JP Morgan, so let's stick with them for the example. If you have these very, very strict KYC AML uh, terms and you have a business that generates billions of dollars and you're trying to like break into something new and that is not your core business that does not generate you billions of dollars, are you going to take the risk of your staking transactions, which yes, you know, through the Lido staking router, it touched no malicious actors and you can guarantee and prove that. But what if it's in the same block as a terrorist transaction or the Lazarus group sending a transaction? Like, is that okay? I, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. Um, and then just one other thing. 
I, I want to hammer down on that point, but I did so ran some quick numbers. And if you were to accumulate 10% of the stake ETH today, you'd have to accumulate $5 billion of, of ETH, which is, yeah. So you, to your point, Mike, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. I So like in order of response there, like I think that friction that you're describing is why TradFi is going to take a long, any TradFi that has like a fiduciary obligation, it's just, it's still far off. Like the pensions are not coming in in mass here. They're just they're just not doing it yet. But like where you where you will see that is like larger and larger pools of like principal capital. So like I think it's going to continue to be like the jumps and the Jane Streets and you know some parts of Citadel. So I think those are the ones that are going to end up taking risk. They're the ones who are more tech savvy anyway. And the institutional adoption is going to be a while. And by the time they're ready to plan any sophisticated attacks like this or or co op the chain like. It's just going to be too expensive and large. And like, I know we're all big believers in crypto. And it's like, yeah, it's just $5 billion to like co-opt Ethereum. Imagine pitching that. <laughs> Imagine pitching that in a bank. Here, here, I got a $5 billion trade idea for you. Magic internet money. Like, I just don't, I just don't see it. So, yeah. I agree. Plus, I also did get the chance to talk to someone from JP Morgan's research team on, on the crypto side of things. And uh, there was two takeaways there. One, um, there's a private blockchain solution called Onyx that he is has been working on. So I do think that's kind of the direction they're going to head. And then two, um, that he mentioned like the first you know DeFi transaction they did on Polygon, and I was like, oh shit, I completely forgot about that. I'm a fish brain because I work in crypto. And he was just like, yeah, unfortunately though, like the FTX stuff, like definitely had an impact on our ability to actually mess around with these things. So I thought that was really weird to actually see like the tangible effects, like I guess a year later in some change of like large institutions actually saying like, yeah, like FTX was kind of a tough one. And then one other big takeaway from a web two company that I uh, talked to there was uh, the thesis that it's really business to business and not business to consumer. Like apparently there is just zero demand from the consumer right now to actually use crypto applications. And the thesis there was like, I think the real use case is business to business going cross border between different business units is incredibly difficult today. Like there's a real use case for it. So kind of thought that was cool. Um, but honestly, the the main takeaway for me was just like, they're still there, uh, which is really cool. They're at ZK on conference in, in Paris. So I'm just kind of like, wow. All right. that That's a good step since, uh, you know, three years ago, even. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute, but before we do that, I wanna let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, App Chain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right, Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team you get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to permissionless, hit me up, let me know, shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. What does uh, institutional adoption look like and where where does it happen is, is really this question that I'm playing with. Sam, I know you're uh, not necessarily a fan of, but you you have this idea of KYC L2s. Walk us through that and do you like kind of why you think that that's where these guys end up going to play. Uh, yeah, it's a depressing outcome, honestly. Um, better than a centralized, I guess, block building, uh, I guess, solution on, on Ethereum mainnet though. So I think it's better, you know, it's better than the actual base layer becoming uh, prone to censorship or prone to censorship. But uh, the general thesis is just, it's pretty simple, really. It's going to be that regulators are going to require that big institutions know their customers. And I think that the best way to do that is to control the on and off ramp. Like it'd be really easy to spin up a 
a bridging user interface where you KYC'd and then you hopped on the chain. You're kind of in your own little silo. You really don't interrupt anywhere except maybe like a cohort of other KYC L2s in your constellation that you painted uh, earlier, Dan. But uh, yeah, I just think it it generally makes sense. There's too much to account for. There's taxes. There's, you know, like we talked about, you know, what, what if you're in the same block as some terrorist group on the other side of the world? Like, I just it makes the most sense. And I think it's ultimately the way that regulators can kind of get their way while we do too, because ultimately you can go down to the censorship resistant base layer that is Ethereum. Um, so not perfect, but that is kind of a theory I, I think is somewhat likely. I'm not sure if I have any special insight on KYC L2s, but it, one thing I will say is I, you know, at some point along the line, some compromises will need to be made either to, you know, fit existing regulatory regimes, which I'm less of a fan of, or or just like better user experience, which I'm like more of a fan of. If if, if there's kind of a, a buried at the heart of decentralization is this idea that you are going to decentralize decision making across a whole bunch of different people. And sometimes there are really hard, challenging problems to solve that like you really want in the hands of the most capable person. And so decentralizing it will actually lead to a worse user experience outcome. So what I actually enjoyed just to bring it full circle about ECC was I thought there was a lot of nuanced discussion from people about where decentralization makes the most sense and how can we maintain like the most important parts of the good parts of decentralization and but still get like acceptable user experiences, you know, because we've been lacking that so much in crypto. So I don't know if uh, KYC L2s are are the way to go, but I I do I do think that like some amount of compromise is actually a sign of progress and not a sign of like defeat. Yeah, I, I feel like there is some middle ground here. And it's like, if you want the institutions to come swim in the same waters as everyone else, it's like, how do you build an environment for them to do that um, without kind of giving up some of the core ethos of crypto? And it's like, that's a super unanswered question. So um, Matt, I, I know you're dying inside. Let's hear it. So I actually don't disagree, right? Like I have to think about it for a second because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, onboarding, even if the end result of crypto is self-custody guarantees with a system that looks a lot like TradFi where no one can steal my funds, I guess that's okay. But while you guys got that, you know, great insight from ETC, I was looking at all these privacy solutions that are yet to come. Um, forgetting the name of the one being built on Anoma, but it's an L1 privacy solution as Nomada, thank you, and Aztec, which will be a ZK L2 that will support privacy. And I think at the end of the day, this is still a huge space. Maybe we don't spend as much time there, but, uh, you know, there's builders building and, and I guess we'll just have to see, at least we'll have the option. And, you know, the, I believe that if you build it in a way that supports privacy and supports real censorship resistance, that that's going to be where the end liquidity and users end up. And at the end of the day, that's all that really matters, right? You can create your KYC Dell too, but if you don't get users in liquidity, it doesn't matter. And if it gets all the users in liquidity, well, you know, it wins. So I guess as long as we have the infrastructure that supports both, I'm okay with it. I actually had this pointed out to me at the ZK Unconference. And it's like, when we say privacy, like, yes, ZK will likely lead the way on making this possible. But what do we actually want? Like, do we want like a fully, uh, you know, like a blockchain where no one knows the addresses, you can't see the transactions. And it's just like this black box, basically, like then, okay, probably not. We've recreated TradFi. So the other end is like, you know, Ethereum, where it's an open ledger, where you can see everyone's address, you can see the transactions you're doing, you know, the assets they've hold and they've transferred. Like, where on that spectrum does privacy make a lot of sense? We had a podcast with uh, Sonny from Osmosis not too long ago. um, And he kind of hit on what they're trying to do is like, their, their solution is kind of like maybe abstract away one layer of this privacy and like give the users um, the ability to like hide their transactions. But at the end of the day, it's still a, it like doesn't remove the ethos of like having a transparent open ledger. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's like an, a good open question to kind of leave the, the listeners with this week is, is what do we say? What do we mean when we say we want privacy in blockchain? But all right, everyone, maybe it's a good place to call it. 